Our passage is John 12, 20 through 33. It's printed for you in your bulletin. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the ones who serve me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now it is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, that in it you show us who you are and who we are in you. That these aren't just ancient words about something that happened, that this is the God-revealed, God-breathed scriptures given to us to encourage our hearts. And to point us to Jesus. So moved by your Holy Spirit now. Open the eyes of our hearts to see your glory and your grandeur and your beauty. And move our hearts to love you all the more and to become like you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in 1998, there was this uh, former NASA engineer who wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. It's a great title, right? It's an eye catcher. His name was Edgar Wisenot. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. but This guy wrote this book. of the Bible, and he had used his years of experience as an engineer in computation, and he had, he had cracked the code. He had found that there was like a specific calendar that if you did the numbers correctly, he figured out, Jesus was going to return on either September 11th, 12th, or 13th, 1988. And so he published this book. He sent hundreds of thousands of copies out to pastors uh, uh, nationwide. He sold, I think, four million copies of this book. It was all over the place. It was a big hit. And as this book was being read, people were saying, this guy, he knows what time it is. This guy has figured it out. And so we've got to, we've got to throw everything in on this. So people were selling land to, to give money to him, to... You know, be able to publish even more copies of the book. Churches split. Families split. And then September 11th, 12th, and 13th arrived and Jesus returned. You know, actually, that didn't happen because it's 2023. Uh, Jesus didn't return. <clears throat> Tons of people disagree. That didn't, you know, dissuade Edgar, though. The week after, he said, actually, I did some computations wrongly. And Jesus actually would come back in 1989. So he actually published another book about Jesus coming back in 1980. And when Jesus didn't come back in September 11, 12, 13, 1989, he published another book in 1990. And he kept doing that until he passed away in 2000. 
It's remarkable. Now, I'm not telling Edgar was not by himself. He might be a funny story for us to think about now, but if you have any experience in the larger uh, Christian subculture, if you've ever turned on religious television on TVN, you'll see every couple of years there's somebody up there that says, you know, every time somebody gets in an argument in the Middle East, Jesus is coming back. There's books about blood moons, and there's books about this thing or that thing, about, oh, here it is. It's happening now. People keep setting dates and keep getting it wrong. Now, I bring all of this up because if you read this passage, you may have noticed that Jesus is talking about the hour of judgment has come. Jesus is talking about something has happened that has triggered him to think it's time. And the question for us, is Jesus delusional here? <laughs> Do we have his words written down by disciples that did not understand what he was talking about and they're just recording it because they said, well, Jesus said it, we've got to write it down. But was Jesus wrong? Was Jesus wrong at the time? So I'm going to walk through this passage. He wasn't, by the way. If you're going to tune out for the next 25 minutes, Jesus was not wrong. Um, and that's important to understand. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to kind of walk through this passage in this first section. It's called the glory of Jesus. One of the things that Jesus says most often, if you read through the Gospel of John, pay attention to what he says. One of the things that he says most often, it is not time. It is not my hour. It is not my time. He says it in John chapter 2. He says it in John chapter 7, John chapter 8. It is not my time. My time is not arrived. Yet here in our passage, Jesus says, the hour's come. So what's changed? Well, as you see at the beginning of the passage, a group of Greeks are seeking him out. A group of non-Jewish people are purposefully going out of their way, and they're in Jerusalem but notice they do not go to the temple. They do not go to the chief priest. They go to Jesus. They're seeking him out. And they've heard about this Jesus who is a person who crosses social boundaries. Who welcomes people in to see him. Way back in John chapter 2 we read about Jesus going into the temple and cleansing the temple of the money changers. People had set up a market there that was taking advantage of people who were traveling into Jerusalem to participate in sacrifices. And they had set up that market in the middle of what was called the court of the Gentiles. There was a specific place in the temple that was set aside for non-Jewish people to come near, to be welcomed at the temple. And these folks who wanted to just make some extra money when there were a lot of people coming to town, they had set up their market right there. They had allowed the animals, to do their business in the court of the Gentiles. So they had heard about this Jesus. They, heard, they had heard about the Jesus who in John 4 goes to a Samaritan village, Samaritans who were despised by Jewish people as half-breeds. And they had heard that Jesus had met with this woman that had been married five times in the middle of the day where everybody could see and could look her in the eyes. And spoken to her about the life that he was bringing to this world. And in fact, as an aside, John chapter 4, that discussion that Jesus has with that Samaritan woman is the longest individual conversation he has with anybody. She who felt shame at even the people in her own city's eyes and the face, the light of this world is drawn out of herself and becomes the conversation partner of Jesus. So these Greek folks had heard about this. And they're thinking, Jesus is going to be in Jerusalem on Passover. Got to find him. It's 
So they see his disciple and they say, Sir, we want to see Jesus. We want to see him. And for Jesus, this is the alarm that goes off. He's got an alarm in his head. And as soon as these Greeks are coming to see him, it's, it's time. It's time. Because he knows that part of his mission is to gather all God's lost children to himself. And that these Greeks seeking him out are not just a couple of people. This is the first trickle of what will become a flood of God's grace covering every tribe, tongue, and nation. That includes us. You know, I don't know all of our family backgrounds. We haven't done the 23andMe stuff or at least haven't shared it with each other. But I would guess the vast majority of us in here have no Jewish background. Or if we do some distant past, um, <laughs> some distant past and we didn't grow up practicing Judaism. Jesus sees this alarm going off and it includes us down the road. And Jesus knows not just that this is like Oh, look, the nations are starting to come to me. He also knows that for the religious leaders that are opposing him and the political leaders that are going to oppose him in Jerusalem, this will be a bridge too far. They already don't like him. He's already upsetting their power and their ability to hold on to it. But this is going to be a bridge too far, just too much. Because you might remember in John chapter 11, they convene this meeting and they say, well, if we let this guy keep going, then the Romans are going to come and they're going to take our nation and our temple. But what are the Romans going to do when they find out that this guy's drawing not only Jewish people to him, but Greeks as well? This is a dangerous man. This is a dangerous man. So his hours come. But his hour, his hour for what? Notice in verse 23, he calls it the hour of his glory. Hour of glory. Now, glory always carries with it the idea of something being seen clearly in all its greatness. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for glory actually means heaviness or weightiness. The idea is if something that was glorious was something that was unable to be ignored, it was weighty. If you were in the presence of the glory of God, it weighed down, it impressed itself upon you, it could not be ignored. In the New Testament, the Greek word for glory, it meant fame or renown, something being seen in all its importance. So Jesus is saying that right now, this moment is the weighty and important moment when who I am and what I am about is going to be most clearly seen. So let me ask you another question. If I were to say to you, the hour of your glory has arrived, what would I mean? Well, it would mean you're being admired for gifts, right? Good things you've done. The, the hour of your glory might be winning a championship and you're holding the Stanley Cup in the air. You know, that fantastic moment. The hockey team wins Stanley Cup. They're all just beside themselves. It's a moment of intense glory. People experience a moment of glory when they maybe, you know, graduate with honors from high school or college and they've reached that moment where their name is called and everybody cheers because, wow, they've done something great done something hard and important. But what is Jesus saying the moment of his glory is? His crucifixion. His crucifixion. Now, let's stop and wrestle with this for a moment. Because we can become inoculated to words over time and concepts. And when we say crucifixion of Jesus, we're like, yes, the cross. The cross is a piece of jewelry. The cross is the center. Yes, the symbol of Christianity. And we we can almost forget how godless the moment of Jesus' crucifixion was. 
How terrible crucifixion falls. Jesus says that the hour for him to be glorified has arrived, and he means that it's the time for his death. But Jesus didn't just die in a general sense. Jesus didn't die an old man surrounded by loved ones after a long life that was lived. Jesus didn't even die from an unexpected disease. Jesus was killed. He was executed. And not just killed in a moment. It wasn't like a, you know, a guillotine that chops head off. That's over like that. He experienced crucifixion, which of all means uh, that governments have used throughout history to execute criminals, crucifixion has to be one of the most heinous ever devised. And I don't just mean because it hurts physically. I mean, that's bad enough, the idea of nails driven into your wrists and your feet. That's painful, of course. But crucifixion was a way of death designed to systematically strip somebody of every shred of dignity. It was supposed to be, the Roman Empire set it up, it was supposed to be a demonstration of their ultimate power. Here's what will happen to you if you cross us. We will strip you of every bit of dignity you have. And we will leave you on a stick in the air for everybody to see. They'll not only take your life, they could have done that in a moment, but they're going to shame this person. They're going to dehumanize this person. They're going to leave them naked and bleeding on a pole. I'm belaboring this because it almost feels like wrong that you could call this glory. I mean, crucifixion was barbaric. It was, it was terrible when the person was a criminal who had been convicted of a true crime. In the crucifixion of Jesus, we have an innocent man. We have the Son of God in the flesh, light of this world, shining into darkness. The combination of Jesus' innocence and this terrible way of execution means the crucifixion of Jesus is the most godless moment in human history. It's like all that is wrong with our world collapsed into a single event. Injustice has happened there. Shame and humiliation. Death has happened there. How can this be glory? How can this be the moment that clearly demonstrates who Jesus is and what he's about? Well, he calls it glory because of what it accomplishes. He calls it glory because of what it accomplishes. In verse 24, he uses a metaphor to spell out what he means. It's the metaphor of a kernel of wheat dying and becoming the source of life. And what Jesus is saying here is that what comes next for him, this crucifixion, it's going to look like darkness snuffing out the light. It's going to look like the extinguishing of hope in this world. It's going to be death. And death is a terrible thing, something to be hated and despised. But that this death and this injustice will not be the end. Those who put Jesus to death, they've not factored something important into their equation. They've not factored in the God who brings life from death, who works justice in the midst of injustice, who declares His purposes and acts to make those purposes come to be. Jesus calls this the hour of His glory because He knows that for Him and for all who trust in God, shame and death cannot be the final word. That for Him and for all who trust in God, death 
always leads to resurrection. It has to. Shame always leads to vindication. It has to. If God is who He is, it has to. Darkness will never overcome the light. It simply cannot. And so this is the moment of Jesus' glory because for Him, life, death, and resurrection is one word. He does not stop and think of His death by itself as, as agonizing as it will be, as terrible as it is, that stripping, that shaming, that death He will experience for Him and for us. Death always leads to this. And that brings me to my next section, the agony of Jesus. All of this doesn't mean that Jesus walks into his crucifixion joyfully. You may have noticed in verse 27, he says, my soul is troubled. And I don't, troubled seems too light of a, a, a translation of this word. Because it's not Jesus saying, I'm a little bit worried about what comes next. Or I'm a little aggravated that I've got to go through this next thing. I'm a little troubled. No, it's a word that means agony. And grief. It's the same word that is used to describe when Jesus grieves over, over the death of Lazarus in chapter 11. When Jesus stops and weeps for his friend. This is grief. And the grief that Jesus felt at the death of his friend is felt here. But this time for himself. And so Jesus cries out, what? Father, glorify your name. And his grief does not go unresponded to. A voice comes from heaven. And what does God say? I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now, Jesus already knows this intellectually, of course. He knows this is true. But here he receives the reminder. A reminder that's not just for him. But we get to eavesdrop on and discover that this reminder is for us, actually. It's why it's recorded in Scripture. He receives the reminder that God will glorify His name. He's done it before, and He'll do it again. Friends, if we're not grieving now, we will be at some point. If you're not grieving right now in this like, stretch of your life, that's great. Grief sucks. But if you're not grieving right now, you will be at some point. We live in a broken world. It's what Paul meant in Galatians 1 when he says Jesus rescues us from this present evil age. We live in a world that's just fundamentally broken and busted. Things don't work the way they're supposed to. People are at odds, and we're not supposed to be at odds with each other. People are given over to violence. We're not supposed to be people that hand their hands to violence. There's darkness in this world, and we can't wish it away with optimism. We can't wish it away with good intentions. But in the midst of your grief, either present or future, hear the voice of God for you. He won't leave you hanging. He won't. No matter how dark that darkness is, either now or in the future, think of the darkness that Jesus is experiencing. God will not leave you hanging. He will glorify His name, which means He will show Himself as the God who works redemption for His people. He's done it before, and He'll do it again. He has glorified His name, and He'll do it again. And His glory means our glory. That's what Jesus means in verse 25 and 26. He makes it clear that this is not true just for Him. It's true for us as well. 
You notice after he uses that parable about wheat, he doesn't just say, this is true for me, I'm about to go to my death, but it's going to be a good thing because some good stuff is going to happen as a result of it. No, he expands this out to us. And when Jesus speaks about us hating our life, it's not him calling us to disdain ourselves. This is not Jesus saying, like, look in the mirror in the morning and say, shame on you. It's not what Jesus is calling us to. That's not what he means. But what he's saying is in the midst of... When you go through darkness and trouble, when someone has wronged you, when you realize the fallout of your own selfishness, these times in life, there's no other way to say it that you have to realize that this is not what we were made for. And there's a certain level of despising the reality of the darkness of this world. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says hating your life, not despising yourself, but hating the reality of the brokenness of this world. What he's saying is that grief and trouble in this life is true. It's something that we should not be resigned to. Suffering and disease and trouble that we face should be hated. We shouldn't go through something difficult and say, thanks God for this. Thank you, sir. Can I have another? That's not what this is calling us to. It's not calling us to resign ourselves to the trouble of our life or to reconcile ourselves to, to grief or death. It's calling us to see it for what it is and actually to hate it. And our lives may be filled in this world with so many joyful things, but it's not the way they're supposed to be. And in whatever pathway lays in front of us, we're called to walk into it with eyes wide open. That's difficult because it would be easier. I would love to put optimistic blinders on and just power through. Because to open our eyes might to be to realize that the darkness is actually much deeper than we think. But the invitation of this passage is not to lead us into despair, but it's to know that whatever darkness we have to walk through, whatever darkness we may walk through, has to give way to the light of God's purpose for us. It has to lead to love. It has to. It has to lead to vindication. And all that is lost to God is never truly lost. That there's no death or loss in the kingdom that does not lead to life. And that doesn't just mean people who lose their lives for their faith. I think sometimes we, in our comfortable uh, 21st century American world, can read passages like this and we're like, I'm kind of never going to experience being possibly crucified. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to walk in the footsteps of Jesus exactly in imitation. That's not going to happen to me. But I think that this passage doesn't just... Speak to people who may lose their life. Because the truth is, in this world we lose so much. And we sacrifice much to be about good at all. I actually dislike it when people say it costs you nothing to be kind. It actually does cost you something to be kind in this world. It's not easy. Chances are we won't face an opportunity to have to, you know, decide between our life and, and Jesus. But friends, we're going to lose time when we help. We lose money when we give to worthy causes. Or when we decide to not take this career pathway that could earn me this salary, but rather I'm going to take this other one. 
Because it's going to be about the good of myself and my family and the people that I'll touch. We lose out on fame or praise from others when we do good deeds in secret and not broadcast them. All these little losses happen in life. But Jesus tells us here that these little losses, these little debts that we are going to die somewhere along the way, they are like our superpower here. Because this is the way that life blossoms, even in the winter of our world. They're like little candles that keep the darkness at bay. And that will mean for us that grief and suffering is going to be easy to bear. It does not, but it does give us a long view on the whole thing that can carry us forward. So we should grieve things that are worth grieving. Notice if Jesus can allow himself to grieve over the loss of his life here, we shouldn't shame ourselves for grieving when we have losses in our lives either. And if Jesus needed to hear the voice of the Father assuring him that this darkness was not the end, we should never shame ourselves from needing to hear it over and over as well. It's not something we hear one time and it clicks and then we're done. We need reminders. We should never stop opening our ears or our hearts to And as an aside, that's one of the reasons why I treasure weekly worship when we gather together on Sundays. It's one of the, the, my favorite things in the world because I need to be with you and I need to hear this gospel over and over. I need to walk in with my heavy heart and the weight on my shoulders and be reminded of the love of the Father for me. I need to hear your voices sing. I need to hear the gospel pronounced. I need to be nourished on the body and blood of Jesus with you. And I need that over and over and over so the agony of Jesus. That brings me to my next section, the judgment of Jesus. So back to the beginning. Remember I mentioned the guy that predicted in 1988. Judgment's here. Judgment's here. Judgment's happened. Jesus is coming back. When I say judgment, this is a weighted word. When I say judgment, especially final judgment, what, what images pop up in your mind? Now judgment in the Bible is a very important concept. The idea is God is just and he will not let people being wronged go unaddressed. God will answer injustice. He doesn't just let it be. And one day He will make all things that are wrong right. Justice will be done and the fullness of His righteousness will be seen in a final judgment. But what images pop up in your mind? For me, I grew up in church and it uh, you know, I went to my fair share of plays and judgment houses and those kinds of things. And it's always this idea of that you get to the end of your life and you got final judgment. And it might be like God's got all your sins on a movie screen when he plays them. And you've got to stand there in shame while everybody watches every wrong thing you've ever done. Or the picture will be like a courtroom and you're in the courtroom. And Satan's the prosecuting attorney, and he's naming off all the wrong things you've done. And the bad thing is, he's got truth, he's got good material. <laughs> he's the father of all lies, the scripture says, but sometimes he's got good material in his pocket. So he's listening to everything off, and you're like, I've prayed for forgiveness for that one. I repented for that one. And then, boop, one pops up you forgot about when you prayed, and then to hell you go. I'm being a, a bit facetious here, but these are the ideas of final judgment that at least I picked up over time from these plays, from these things that people had said. 
Jesus here is talking about final judgment in a way that kind of undermines, in a sense, those, those kinds of ideas. You may have noticed it in verse 31. Jesus says, the hour of his crucifixion, the hour of his glory here, is, quote, the time for judgment on this world. The time for judgment on this world. What can he mean? I think he means two things here. And the first one is this. The crucifixion of Jesus is the place where the darkness of this world is most fully seen. It's like the moment in a horror movie when people are running away from the monster that they can just hear and they catch like glimpses of its tentacle or something. But then lightning flashes and boom! There's the monster in all its terror. Crucifixion of Jesus is that. It's this shocking moment when you realize, man, the best religious and political minds of the world, when God in the flesh showed up, they put him to death. <laughs> when God in the flesh arrived, our best religious thinking and our best political thinking put him to death. It's this shocking moment. The crucifixion of Jesus is a judgment in a sense that it's an unveiling of the depth of the darkness here and God facing that darkness and all its power by suffering all it can throw at him. I think that's why Jesus immediately says that this moment is where the prince of this world is driven out. He's referencing Satan here, the, the personal being, God's enemy, who tries to, to, to weave this darkness and this sin who's the source of of sin in this world who tries to weave it toward his purposes to oppose thriving, to oppose life, to oppose all things that are associated with God. And so it says here that Jesus not only exposes the reality of the darkness but in some way his crucifixion is facing the source of that darkness to root it out, to topple its kingdom. By absorbing all the darkness can throw that all that the darkness can throw at him, he unveils it and he guts its power. But there's a second way that Jesus means that this moment is judgment, and we actually read about this. It's, it's what First Peter is talking about in our assurance of pardon passage that we read earlier. We'll read it again. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The idea is this, in Jesus, judgment for us, final judgment for us, has already happened. The power of sin to condemn us is taken away. Hear that. Your sin has no power to condemn you. When we come to Jesus by faith, it's good. And we can be assured that at that crucifixion, at that cross as Jesus stood in our place, as it says, it took his, our sins on his body, on that cross. That final judgment already happened by God removing the verdict. And God removing the punishment from us. And Jesus facing it instead. His cross is the place where he voluntarily experiences the wrath of God against our sin in our place. Where Jesus faces the just condemnation that belongs to this world. And us as part of it. He takes our sin, and in doing this, Jesus satisfies God's justice, justice by substituting Himself. And so for you, there is no possibility of future condemnation. That is the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. 
that there's no sin, past, present, or future that can separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ. There's no sin that anybody else could do against me that can separate me from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. That I have an invitation from God Himself to not fear any future condemnation. I wish I could go back in time and tell 14-year-old me who's at a judgment house that somebody took me to with good intentions. They thought this is a, this is a good event somebody's putting on and it's, it's giving praise to Jesus. I wish I could go back in time and tell myself, everybody in that room, what I'm telling you this morning. That final judgment for me has already happened. And I have, I have to fear no possible future. When I stand in the presence of the God who loves me, there will not be a moment in the future where He says, it's time for your shame. Before you get into heaven, we're going to play the movie out. Here's every wrong thing you've ever done. God doesn't need to play at it like that. He doesn't need to shame me. There's no possible future where that happens. He gives us absolute assurance that there's no condemnation for me to fear. That we found in Jesus assurance that what awaits us today, what awaits us in the future, is not condemnation, but grace. Grace upon grace. And what God pronounces on us this morning in the gospel is what He has for us tomorrow and in all of our tomorrows. In the face of our sin forgiveness, in the face of our wounds healing, in the face of our death life, in the face of our shame vindication. So be encouraged this morning. Not because I tell you to. Not because you want to be an optimistic person that hopes for the best. But be encouraged because there's no part of the darkness of our world, the darkness of your own heart that Jesus has not faced for you. There's no darkness in your past, present, or future that He's not in fail to defeat His power. There's no darkness in your heart or the hearts of others that can stop His purposes for you to live in light of His love for you. To be encouraged and know that God is with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that we can entrust to you even our grief. That we can entrust to you even our losses and know that nothing given to you by faith is truly lost. That as we have come to you in faith and we have been washed by you. As we have had the verdict of Jesus pronounced upon us and we are righteous in, our, in your sight because of his righteousness given to us and received by faith, that we can live the rest of our lives in full confidence. The power of sin has been gutted. The penalty of sin has been experienced on our behalf. And what lies ahead for us is not death or shame or condemnation, but it is freedom. It is vindication. It is our good in your glory. Impress that upon our hearts as we come to this table in a moment. Nourish our souls on it that we might find our hope in you and you alone. In Jesus' name.